so we have been on this journey this last month um, looking at this whole topic of evangelism and sharing our faith. And my goal in this journey was to help us reframe, to reimagine, to re-envision uh, what it means to do evangelism in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Uh, so all the way back at the beginning of the series, we talked about the reality that uh, this lost cause uh, of Jesus is so vital to what he was doing. I mean, he said he came to seek and save the lost, to bring back those who had wandered into the family. It was so vital, but there are so many cultural factors and uh, just things that are going on in our society that make it feel impossible or actually give us an allergy to doing that. Uh, a lot of times it's the bad ways that we see it done. Uh, maybe it's a disappointment in our past experiences and sharing our faith with others, but we sort of just take a step back. And I've challenged us that we can't do that because it's so vital to what Jesus was about. We can't follow Jesus if we're not sharing this good news with others. But all the way back at the beginning of the series, we talked about we got to begin with what is this good news that we're sharing? Is this good news just that you get to go to heaven when you die? Is this good news just that you get off uh, uh, from all of your uh, sin and brokenness and you're forgiven so you get your get out of hell free card kind of thing? Like, is that the, the, the story that we're selling, the story that we're sharing? And I said, no, let's look back at the original good news, the good news that actually Jesus came and he preached. If we would preach that good news, man, that is a story worth telling. Jesus came on the scene and said that the kingdom of God is at hand and he is bringing it. So repent and trust and believe this good news that I am the king and there's a new kingdom where all things are being made new. Not just someday, but in the here and now. And so we talked about the compelling gospel, the compelling message of Jesus, of this new king and this new kingdom. The next week, we had to deconstruct a little bit what it looks like to reach the world. You know, Jesus' last marching orders to his disciples was go into the world making disciples. And we think, man, I got a mortgage payment. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? That feels really complicated and impossible. And we took a step back to see that we all reach the world when individually we reach our world. The Greek word oikos, those 8 to 15 people that are your network, your extended family of connections. And so you and I, we all have this call, this challenge to embody and to share and invite people to trust this good news of Jesus, the people that are right in front of us people that share bleacher seats, the people that are our neighbors, the people that live in our home, our coworkers, all those people, that's our world to reach. And so we need to have a, re, <clears throat> a reignited passion for the people that are right in front of us, our oikos. And then uh, last week we talked about what is the method that we use to share this good news? Is it all about converting people, getting people to switch from team me to team Jesus or team devil to team Jesus? Like, and we're trying to just convince them to change their thinking. Is that what evangelism is? Is just trying to convert people? We said, no, it's, it's better than that. It's this call from the very beginning of the scriptures to be a blessing to those around us, our oikos, the world in front of us, to bless them, to welcome them into our life and our world, and to serve them, to get dirt under our fingernails, to better them, to lighten their load in the name of Jesus. It's about being a blessing more than it is being on this mission to convert or getting more notches in our spiritual belt, if you, as you will, right? And today, as we close this series, I, I want to maybe have us deconstruct what we think of when we think of the word witness and to reconstruct what I would say the original idea of witness was and how we can be a witness to our oikos, our 8 to 15 people in front of us, our world that we engage with on a rhythmic basis. What does it mean for us to be a witness? 
And even as I say that, I can see in so many of your eyes, you're like, this is where things get weird. This is where things get awkward. Like witnessing, like we have this cultural understanding of witnessing and we think of the person who's like street witnessing, right? With the sign on the street being like, I'm just gonna have these random conversations with strangers as they're just trying to like walk back to their car in the parking garage. We think that's what witnessing is. Or um, I often think about the truth bomber, the person who like you might be just having a normal conversation with, but they don't care at all. They just drop a truth grenade. Like they take the, the trigger off, they just throw it and they're like, if you would die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? And you're like, bro, I'm just trying to eat my bagel. Like, what is going on here? Or maybe the Jesus juker, you know, when you're having like a normal conversation, all of a sudden they juke you out with more Jesus, where maybe this last week you're like, man, it is so hot outside. I feel like I'm going to melt. And the Jesus juker comes in the conversation and be like, I know a place that's much hotter than outside in Indiana in August. <laughs> You don't want to spend eternity there. You're like, bro, come on. What are you doing, right? We think like this is what it means to witness to others is to bring the awkward in the conversation. And, and so it's just not what it's actually about. I mean, Jesus actually, um, his marching orders after he was you know, killed on the cross, resurrected, spent 40 days with his disciples in Acts 1-8, we're, we're called to this witnessing reality. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. And I'd say in a way he's saying it to us today. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that you will be my witnesses. The Greek word used for witness in the New Testament is the word martus. Martus. Can you guys say martus with me? 845. One, two, three. Martus. This was somebody who saw something amazing, saw something incredible, and then they were asked to bear witness in a court of law to share about this, to not only like see it, but to share, to bear witness. And this picture of being a martus and then bearing witness to the amazing, incredible things that we have seen and experienced is so central to the mission of God that we see played out throughout the pages of Scripture. In the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father, we see Jesus ragtag of a, a group of 11 disciples, and they're just witnessing. They're martusin all over the place. They're telling everybody in the face of Roman imperial persecution, in the face of the group of Sadducees, the religious elite, they're telling everybody, no, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is Lord, and y'all are the ones that killed him, but he is the Lord, and he is still alive, and he is still reigning, and he is bringing his kingdom to bear. And they did this through their preaching and through uh, the way that they spoke boldly, but they did it through so much more than just their words. They demonstrated what it was like to, to heal and to include and to serve and to bring peace and shalom into people's chaos and their dysfunction. And we see this played out through the book of Acts, but even outside of the Bible, we see accounts of early Christians taking their responsibility to witness so seriously. There's this letter that we have um, from the first century. It's called the letter to uh, Diognetus. And Diognetus was a Roman imperial officer. And we have this letter dated 130 AD. <clears throat> so a little over 100 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this is what was said about the early Jesus followers. Every foreign land is to them as their native country. And every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. They treat people where they're from with no discretion. They marry, as do all. They beget and have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Uh, during this time, it was very common for people to dispose of their babies if they were the wrong gender. 
You can imagine what gender that was in the ancient world, right? But Christians, they didn't do that. They, they cherished all of their children, their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed, meaning that they let everybody share a table with them. <laughs> but the bedroom was exclusive for their spouse. One author said that the early Christians, they were liberal with their money and they were conservative with their bodies. They gave their resources to about everybody and they gave their bodies to nobody, which was countercultural in the first century. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. In other words, they're not letting their, their animalistic appetites rule them, even though they're people. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws. They're great citizens, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They go beyond what the law says. They love all men and are persecuted by all. This was a description of early Jesus followers, of the way that they lived, not anti-culture, not anti-anybody, but what I would say radically counter-cultural in the way that they lived and they were citizens in the ancient Roman Empire, where they were the oppressed. This is how they lived. About 200 years later, this early Jesus-following movement, it starts to bubble up around the surfaces, and there's an outbreak of a pandemic, the Cyprian flu that killed multiple millions of people in the ancient world. And we get a report of what the Christians were actually doing, what these crazy Jesus followers were actually doing in the midst of a global pandemic that was killing millions of people before the scientific revolution, before anybody knew anything about vaccines and, and social distancing and all those things. This is what the Christians were caught doing, and check out the result of their actions. Eusebius, who is a third century historian, reports this. In this awful adversity, they alone gave practical proof of their sympathy and humanity. He's talking about the Christians. All day long, some of them tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. People that were sick and dying with no family, the Christians stepped in to be their family. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. They met people's physical needs, their hunger, so that their deeds, their actions were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Oh, what a beautiful picture of the chaotic, tumultuous season. And where were the Christians? They weren't hiding in their holy huddles. They weren't gathered in their churches. They weren't speaking out against people, but they were in the thick of it, serving people. And I love the result of this, that everybody was talking about these Jesus followers. I can't believe the way that they're living, the way they're serving people. And then they began to give glory to this God that they worship, this Jesus, this king that they followed. So much so that this is early third century, midway through the third century before the whole Roman Empire was turned to be Christian, over 50% of the entire Roman imperial population claimed faith and allegiance to King Jesus. The message spread like wildfire from a poor rabbi carpenter from the backwoods of the Roman Empire. Over half of them declaring their allegiance to them. This message could not be stopped. And I will go on a limb here. I will say this. The message of Jesus, this movement of the early church, it was not spread just because of the doctrines or the beliefs of these early Christians. It was spread because of their actions and the way that they bared witness with their lives this new king and this new kingdom that was upside down with Jesus in the center of it. I'll put it this way. The way that the early Christians lived paved the way for the world to trust their message. 
It wasn't that they had like a charismatic leader who could fill stadiums with his speaking abilities. It wasn't just because of like the miracles and other actions that they could do, but the way that they lived, the way that they served, the way that they included, the way that they radically loved paved the way for the world to trust this message to where over half the Roman Empire by the middle of the third century claimed to trust Jesus. I want to help us today reimagine what it means to bear witness and talk about the way that we live being the most powerful witness that we live. And if our oikos, the, the, the 8 to 15 people are in our front row of our lives that see us under stress and under joy in a rhythmic way, if they see the way that we live in this countercultural way, man, it will be a life that's lived to lead to the question, why, what, what's that all about? And how that is the most powerful witness that we have. So today, if you're here this morning and you don't claim to be a follower of Jesus, don't claim to be very religious or spiritual, and you're here, first I just want to say, man, I'm so honored that you'd spend time with us. That you'd get up early first service to come to church. That's awesome. That's crazy. That's countercultural, right? But second, I would say this, that this message is not directly pointed at you this morning. This is going to be like a challenging message, uh, but maybe not to you. Um, I hope it's a challenging message that I step on some toes this morning in a loving way uh, towards my fellow Jesus followers in the room. This is going to be a course correction. I want to, uh, to twist the knife a little bit for us to see uh, the way that this should be and the way that we so often, myself included, miss the mark. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I want you to see a vision of what this could look like, what this kingdom of God being embodied in our world could look like. And I pray uh, that you'd be intrigued by it, that you'd be drawn like a bug to a light to this Jesus and the way that he's invited us to live. But it's going to be challenging for the rest of us. Because I want to talk about the way that we live our lives being so powerful and the witness that we bear to the world. The first way I, I think that Jesus is inviting us to live as a witness is by authenticity, to be an authentic witness, to be the real thing, not the diet version, not the substitute version, but the real thing. I mean, we're so attuned in our culture to see knockoffs, right? The cheap substitutes. Uh, I found a couple of funny ones online if you're looking for some golf gloves, um, not quite Nike, but if your name's Mike, it works out really, really well for you, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and it was half off. It's amazing. Uh, the next one, give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that cat caught. Um, bar. Fancy feast. Uh, but anyway, not quite the same thing uh, at all. The new cat caught. And then this last one, this is how I feel about these boots. Maybe you can't see it, but these are not quite Ugg boots, but they added a, uh, an H instead of a, another G. So it's Ugh boots. Are these out of style yet? The Ugh boots, right? They're not quite the real thing. And, and we, we're so attuned to see the knockoff. Here's the reality, my friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, your oikos, your world, the front row of your life, man, they so see when you're faking it, where you're phoning it in, where you're not the real thing, where you're using faith as something to be used instead of a way to see the world. And what people long to see is an authentic version of yourself, vulnerabilities, warts, limp and all of you following Jesus and carrying things forward. I think this is so challenging. Uh, author and priest uh, Brennan Manning said this back in the 90s in a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. He said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. This is what turns people off. This is what gets people to tune out from our lives. 
is when we claim something, we're church people, we live a certain way, we've even got the Jesus sticker on the back of our car, right? But when we're under stress, um, we, we chicken little. <laughs> when something is out of our control, there's adversity in our lives, our circumstances, our hair goes on fire, and we start freaking out instead of embodying trust in this God who has still got the whole world in his hands. Uh, the way that we talk about other people, we talk about Jesus being our treasure and our king, but then we talk about people like they're trash and that they're below us, or the way that we treat waiters, waitresses, or people that serve us in public, we treat them with less than type of dignity. And people see this and they're like, this is just, no, this is foolish. They're treating this faith like a crutch so that they feel good so they go to heaven when they die, but they're not bearing witness to anything good happening in our world. Uh, my friend Robin, uh, who's actually in this service this morning, she shared this on Facebook. And there's so much talk about Christians being persecuted today. And I think this is a helpful angle, a challenging angle for us to consider. Uh, the church is not being persecuted in America. The church is being challenged to act like Jesus, held accountable for not sounding like Jesus, and losing a generation who actually wants to follow Jesus. My friends, there is a world that is longing to see an authentic expression of Christian spirituality, where we don't just worship Jesus with our songs and treat people like trash, but we worship Jesus with our lives, our words, our money, our public witness in the way that we work. This is what we are being invited and challenged to be. And there's a helpful principle found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I think, for these situations with the way that we treat others, the way that we act in the world that would lead us to have an authentic witness versus just a fake, phony, kind of opportunistic witness about faith. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul is writing to a group of Jesus followers in this place called Corinth where they're having this big discussion over should we eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? There's one group saying, well, there's, you know, the idols, they're not real gods behind the idols, so like we, sh we can do anything, right? Because there's only one God and there's another group being offended by it, thinking that it wasn't something that was honoring to God because people saw them eating the meat sacrificed to idols. And so you have sort of two sides of this conversation. Paul writes back and there's a principle in here that goes way beyond eating meat in the first century, but I think it goes to our social media practices, the way we treat and talk about people today. Paul says this, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, right? That's what you guys are saying, but not everything is constructive. And here's the kicker. No one should seek their own good, but should seek the good of others. With your actions, with your words, we can't only be thinking about our Selves. This feels like preschool, kindergarten theology that we still need seep down into our bones, right? We can't just think about ourselves. We've got to be people that are looking outwards to other people and how it affects them. What a principle for us to think of in our world today. That, yeah, we can do any, everything, anything, but not everything is constructive. We need to be people that are building up, not tearing down. So let's talk about social media just for a couple moments. I mean, social media, the way that we share things, if we share a news article, a salacious headline that aligns with our political worldview, but we don't do the homework to see where it's coming from, and we don't see if it was properly sourced or if it's only from our news outlet, but nobody else is saying anything about it. I mean, if we're sharing something that's fake, something that's just going to tear other people down and maybe their political worldview or them as a person, and we cannot follow the Jesus who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life and be people that are spreading lies, even if we, they align with our understanding of the world. 
in social media. Again, like putting down other people, whether it be somebody running for public office, whether it be a business, whether it be just people that we know. We've got to be careful because, yeah, we can post whatever we want. We have the right to do that. But is it constructive? Are we thinking about the good of others? Are we trying to get like a cheap thrill from putting somebody else down, dehumanizing someone? Remember, we can't love God as treasure and treat people like trash. That is what an unbelieving world goes, yeah, I'm out on this. I can't have anything to do with this because you're not living to your own words, your own Savior's words. We need to have this authentic witness of the way that we live and walk in this world. And I like thinking of it as having an authentic witness with vulnerabilities to walk with a limp. Like, we've got to understand, like, that people know that we're not perfect, so we should stop acting like our own stuff doesn't stink. You know what I mean? Is that just something my grandma used to say? Maybe. But we've got to be people that are not hiding our vulnerabilities. You know, authenticity is something that is so attractive, not only to the current generation, but to all generations. This is what people love. I heard somebody say once that people will admire you for your strengths, but they will deeply resonate and connect with your weaknesses. To always be someone who's not being the hero of the own story, but letting people see the inside, letting people see your vulnerabilities. This is what will connect with people. This is what it means to have an authentic witness, not to like act super Christian when you're not super Christian. Actually, don't ever act like a super Christian. Let's just stop it right there. Just be someone who is walking with a limp. I forget who said it, but the reality of being a Christ follower in a vulnerable, authentic way is saying, like, I'm just another beggar inviting, I'm a beggar inviting you as a beggar to come find where there's bread. Not saying that we're the baker, not saying that we know everything, but I just want to help connect you to this Jesus who changes everything. And not only that, to understand in our vulnerabilities, like, we're not perfect. So when we mess up, Let us, as Jesus followers, be the first to own it, to confess, to apologize, to make amends. Not holier than thou, not trying to cover it up, not trying to like over-spiritualize it and say, well, the devil made me do it, or, you know, the enemy's really after me. No, just say that you are being selfish, right? I feel like I'm like really like angry this morning. That's not my tone, but I just want us to like hear this, right? Let's be people that make amends. It's a funny thing, especially in religious circles, to where people are like, they don't want to apologize. They don't want to own up their mistakes um, because it kind of feels vulnerable to us. And they think that maybe people will lose respect for them if they say that they were wrong. You know, it's funny, though. Like, I actually gain respect for people. I gain respect. I don't lose respect for people when they apologize, when they say that they've fallen short, when they apologize for the way they hurt me or somebody else. Like, the respect goes up in my book, because that's what authenticity looks like. That's what growth looks like. My friends, you and I were invited to be this vulnerable, authentic version of ourselves running after Jesus, not putting on airs to look like somebody else or to be perfect, but this is who you and I are invited to be. And we're following this Jesus who came into the world vulnerable, right? Think about the Christmas story. Jesus, the internal son of God, enters into humanity through the vulnerability of human childbirth. And in the first century, human childbirth was so much more vulnerable than what we could even possibly imagine in the modern world. And I think Jesus came into the world in a vulnerable state on purpose because it shows us that's the path to really living out God's stories through vulnerability and authenticity. This is what the world is longing for, a witness that is authentic and vulnerable. Another version of this, this bearing witness thing that I think we are called to be is to be just, to be justice-oriented people, to have a just witness. 
Now, when we think about justice, we think about judgment in our modern context, right? And we, we sort of go to like, you know, characters from movies. Like if you're a little bit older, you think of John Wayne bringing in justice into town on a horse with a pistol, right? You think like someone's going to get what they deserve. Justice is coming. Or if you're younger, you think of John Wick and don't mess with John Wick's dog because you'll have three or four movies about how they're coming after you after that, right? It's all about getting justice. People that have done something wrong, they really get what they deserve. They're punished. They're put down for what they did. That's what we think of when we think of justice justice. But in the the corpus of scripture from beginning to end, justice is talked about all the time. God being a God of justice, God bringing justice. It is such a huge part of the story. 396 references to justice in the Old Testament at at all. It's just there, right? 396 just in the Old Testament. But the word that's used for justice is is the Hebrew word mishpat, Mishpat, you know I'm going to make you say it. One, two, three, Mishpat. That's what justice is over 396 times. And Mishpat is not retributive justice, getting back at someone for what they've done. Mishpat was restorative justice. It was taking someone who had been harmed or been oppressed or been the underclass, the outcast, and lifting them back up. It was not just justice vertically between God and people. It was horizontal justice between the party that had been wronged and the people that had perpetrated those people. This is the justice that God is about, is lifting up the oppressed and giving people dignity across the board. And and sometimes, you know, there's punishment involved with the people that are pushing down, but it's about equaling the scales. This is biblical justice. I love what Dr. Jeff Stark, author and pastor says. He says, biblical justice is about ensuring that humanity can flourish in the ways God has intended And that individuals are afforded dignity that is inherent in all humanity, bearing the image of God. This is biblical justice. This is the story that Jesus was on as he was flipping over tables, as he was welcoming the outcasts, as he was restoring dignity to groups of people and individuals who had been hit in the face saying that you don't have any dignity. He was about biblical justice. And this is good news to all people, especially the poor, the outcast, those on the underbelly of society. And you know what bad news is? Injustice is bad news. It demands a response of justice. And this is what Jesus brought. And so for us to walk through our world, we can't just be so thinking about ourselves and about our eternal destination that we don't see and actually seek out injustices in front of us in the micro and the macro. I've heard this said so many different ways, but I think this is so true, that Christians can be so heavenly-minded that we aren't up to any earthly good. Isn't this true? That we can be so zeroed in on our eternal destination, and that's all that we're thinking about, that we're not up to any earthly good, and the oikos around us, the people around us that we are called to serve. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be thinking about heaven. I'm just saying that we should think about heaven in the context of heaven is the operating center of where Jesus the King is bringing his kingdom from. And heaven is not just someplace we go, but it's something that's crashing in to earth as Jesus restores this world and all of his people inside of it. And he had some harsh words to say for people that were just heavenly minded. Jesus did. This is entering into Jesus, the insult comic phase of the gospels. I love this so much. Uh, Matthew 23, he's talking to some Pharisees, some religious leaders, harsh words from the Prince of Peace. Check them out. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. 
You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Mic drop Jesus, right? But I love what Jesus is saying here because I think this is a challenge to you and me as well. Jesus is saying that you cannot worship God vertically and neglect worshiping God horizontally through loving our neighbors. What what does Jesus say? He weighs out the law and he says the most important values of the law are justice, mishpat, restorative justice, mercy, helping people not get what they deserve and being merciful towards them and faithfulness. This is the most important thing, not just giving a tenth of your spices. We can't just do that. It's about loving the people in front of us, considering other people and their lives. Jesus is rebuking a type of spirituality. Check this out. Not me, but Jesus is rebuking a type of spirituality that elevates just you and me and God and neglects the horizontal of our neighbor and what they're going through. I'll put it this way. When we are only concerned with ourselves, it's a bad witness to Jesus as king. When we're only concerned of, let me add a little addendum here because I know you're thinking of it. Uh, when we're only concerned with ourselves and those family members that we're legally obligated to care for, <clears throat> it's a bad witness to Jesus as king. That Jesus being king means that we are going to be looking out not only for us, but for those who may be on the underclass, those who are on the outside looking in, those who are oppressed. That is what Jesus is about. You know, we are only concerned with ourselves if when we go into a voting booth and we're only thinking about ourselves and our tax dollars and that's how we're voting. That's only concerned with ourselves. When we demonize the other and whatever the other is in our world, in our neighborhood, in our work, in our country or outside of our country, when we demonize the other instead of considering what life is like in their shoes, man, that's bad news. When we spend more time, more energy, more focus, white knuckling our money, our freedom, our rights, we spend more time doing that than considering and fighting for those of others. My friends, we have forsaken the king whose marching orders were this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. I mean, you can live your life only considering how life affects you, but you can't do that and follow this Jesus at the same time, my friends. And there is a world in front of you, in your neighborhood, on the bleachers, in your schools, in your workplaces that are longing to see a spirituality that lives up to their king's marching orders, to be a justice-seeking, a just witness. Jesus, he did this too. He stood up for the least, the last, the outcast, the oppressed, the cheated, for justice. And when we do, we bear witness to this king and this kingdom, and people will see And they'll be drawn to it like a bug to a light. So we're challenged to have an authentic witness that's vulnerable, but it's the real thing. We're challenged to have a just witness, to be considering those on the outside looking in with our lives. We're also, I think, challenged to have a patient witness, to have a patient witness towards others. You know, everything in our culture is being bent towards quicker, faster, more results, bigger, better, more now. I mean, this is the whole rise of AI or artificial intelligence, right? That we can, like, get some system there that will actually help us be more productive and produce more. And we got ChatGBT. Thanks, ChatGBT, for writing this sermon, by the way. You were awesome. 
It's like, I always think like, man, has nobody seen any of the Terminator movies and how this plays out? I don't know, but we're just like leaning right into it because we want more, bigger, faster, quicker results. And this whole reality has influenced our spirituality and our church life, our following Jesus as well. I mean, we're hoping to bless a friend, invite them to church, be a positive influence in their life, but it's slow. <laughs> and sometimes we feel like they take more steps back and then we want to give up because it, it just doesn't work. And we feel like we've put all this time in this investment and there's no return. And then we just move back. And we're like, well, I'll move on to the next thing, the next person, because it's just not working. And I think that Jesus is challenging us to have a patient witness with those that we're still praying for, those that we're longing to see be a part of the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus' disciple Peter writing in the New Testament letter of Second Peter, I know creatively titled here, uh, this is what Peter says. But do not forget this one thing, my dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter is speaking to a culture that's waiting any day. They're like looking at the sky, like when is Jesus going to return? And Peter is saying, hey, don't, let's not like be looking at the sky. Let's get busy doing the kingdom work right here. Remember that like God is patient. He was patient with you. And he's looking at them in the back like, yeah, he was really patient with you. He was patient with me. And he doesn't want anybody to perish, but he longs to give people time so they can repent. And to repent, I know that word has a lot of cultural baggage, but to repent was just to simply turn around and return to the source of our life, to march in a different direction in the way of King Jesus and his family. So often we, we give up patience way before God has given up patience on us, don't we? We, we get impatient. And I think the challenge of having a patient witness is to set up camp in people's lives. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep inviting. Keep blessing. Keep serving. Keep showing up in their lives. And even if it feels slow, even if it never happens, our role is to set up camp in people's lives and be patient with them, to love them, to serve them, to bear witness to Jesus and his kingdom. I struggle with this so much. I'm so impatient with people, if I can just be real with you, if I can be vulnerable and authentic. Let me just do that. That I struggle with this so much. I remember early on when we had launched the church, there was um, this young lady who had messaged me on Facebook saying, winter services, I can't wait to come check out your church. My life is a mess. Like, I want to come. And I'm like, oh, that sounds great. I told her about it. And she never showed up. And then three months later, I get another message. Winter services now. Where are you located? What do I have to wear? All this kind of stuff. So I'm like, okay, I did it again. And then like another year passed. <laughs> And I'm like, and she messaged me again, never showed up. And then at this point, I'm like, copy and paste my original message, just dropped it back in there. Like, you're never showing up, lady. And it ended up being three years into the church. And it was a Saturday night and she texted me and she's like, hey, I'm coming to church tomorrow. I'm going to be there at the 10. And I'm like, okay, is really what it was. I didn't really say anything back. She showed up and she brought a friend. She's been coming every single week for the last two months. And I'm like, I totally wrote you off, right? That's really what I was thinking. And I give up so, so quickly. And I forget so often how patient God was with me and how God played the long play with me. And man, I want to be that for other people and keep showing up, setting up camp in people's lives to serve them, to lighten their load so that at just the right time, they would open up their hearts, their minds to the reason I'm living my life for Jesus. So we, I want to challenge you guys to, to have a witness, to bear witness, to live our life in such a way that opens up people's curiosity to why we're doing it. Let me ask you this question. This is something that's been challenging me for the last couple months. Are you living a life that leads to why? Like, why? Are you living a life that leads to why? 
sense? Like, what are they doing? Why would they respond that way? Like, why are they doing that with the resources? Why are they spending their time that way? Why do they keep showing up? Why are they so calm in the face of adversity? Why are they like, you know, not having to put on a face, but they're like teary and emotional and real. They show the warts and all. Why do they live this way? This is the beauty and the challenge for us. If you're a Jesus follower, this is our challenge to live a life that leads to why, to what, why would they do that? So how's your witness? Does your life lead breadcrumbs back to the king and to his kingdom and his way? Or does your life lead breadcrumbs just back to the normal cultural story of living for me, myself, and I, and what I want, and my comfort, and all that I could possibly desire. So I want to put up these three categories for us here. These three categories. And I want to challenge you guys to have an authentic witness, a just witness, a patient witness. These three words, I want you to think, like, let's get real for a moment here. Like, which one for you are you're like, yeah, that no one would describe me that way? <laughs> which one for you are like, you're like zeroing in on because you're like, yeah, that doesn't describe my life, the way I talk, the way I live, the way I am at work. Which one for you are you like, yeah, that's the one. I want us to zero in. I want you to zero in as a thought experiment. Which one do you need to invite Jesus into to rearrange in your heart so that people like see you and that you bear witness to this king through this? Is it being authentic and vulnerable? Is it being just and you like being someone who is looking for justice, that mishpat, restoring thing in our world and in our community? Or is it patient? Are you just so quick to give up on those people? And the challenge to this is not, I'm not going to leave you with like, work harder, be better, like, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. The challenge for you and the challenge for me is to preach the gospel to ourselves and to repent and believe the gospel in all three of these categories. Remember the gospel that Jesus preached at the beginning of the series that we looked at. It's Mark chapter one. Jesus said this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, turn around and trust, believe this good news that there's a king who's coming. I want us to go back to that list. And how can we believe that the kingdom of God is here and we repent and we trust? If we're struggling with being authentic, maybe for us, we repent from overinflating ourselves and having to put on a mask. And we realized that like, no, Jesus had to come for me because I was looking for love in all the wrong places. And part of the whole story is that I needed grace. I needed to be woken up by the radical welcome and forgiveness of Jesus. So I don't have to put on airs. I don't have to put on a mask. I don't have to be super Christian. I can be a beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. That's how you repent and trust this good news is by remembering what Jesus has done for you. Maybe for you, when it comes to being just, how do you repent and believe the good news? For you to grow in justice in your life, it's gotta begin with the story that Jesus is telling is not of us just evacuating, getting out of here and going to heaven. But the story that Jesus was so concerned with telling was how to get eternal life to crash into here and now. And that we're following a Jesus who is making all things new. And so we have a choice. We can either get in line with him or we can get in his way. And we repent, we return from just thinking about ourselves, but thinking about others and helping other people be lifted up and being restored <laughs> because this is what Jesus is about. Jesus shows us how to use power, right? And he didn't just use power for himself to build his platform, but he gave it away in an act of justice and restoration. Maybe for you, it's patience. You're like, yeah, I, I, I'm, no one would describe me as patient. No, I don't have a patient witness. How do you repent and believe this good news and trust this king and this kingdom? Uh, remember, my friends, for you, 
how patient God was with you, how patient God is with you. Can I like tell you the news? Like he's still patient with you. He's patient with me. Let's repent. Let's return. Let's move our feet in a different direction and be like, Jesus, I need that kind of patience. I want to embody the patience that you've shown to me, to my kid who's still wandering, to my coworker who's destroying their life. That is what it looks like to have a patient witness, is to stay in the game, to set up camp, to keep praying, to keep serving, to every couple weeks inviting and trying to include. Because Jesus was so patient with you, man, let's repent from our impatience and let's march in his way, his direction of patience. Ultimately, um, it comes back to our role as Jesus followers. I love what um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, talking about his ministry. He says this, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is so vital for me, understanding my role. And maybe we need to have some role confusion. This is important for all of us. That my friends, you are not invited or challenged or called to be a moral police. You're not challenged to be judge, jury, and executioner. That's not your role. Your role is to be an ambassador for King Jesus. And you know what ambassadors have? Ambassadors have a great responsibility because they, they have this role of representing an entire kingdom and the, the, uh, the values of that kingdom when they walk into a different country. They have that respect there. There's a great power in that because people look at them and they're like, oh my gosh, th- this is like this person is representing this entire nation. But there's also a great privilege of being an ambassador that we come to represent. We come to embody the way of Jesus. This is what you and I are called to be. Not to save anybody, not to convert anybody, but to represent and be an ambassador of our King Jesus. May it be so that the way that we live leads breadcrumbs back to King Jesus. The way that we're authentic, the way that we're just, the way that we are patient, may it lead breadcrumbs back to our King and his kingdom.